Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily, the little sister to Wednesday's Big Mama. I am Alex Andreo, and I'm talking to you from my sixth month stranded in Mykonos, Greece, where the possibility of my returning home to the UK has been teased and taken away like planning permission at a Tory fundraiser. Today's guest works for the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, or the JCWI, a small charity whose mission is to live in a country in which immigration law and policy are based on evidence and are underpinned by respect for human dignity. You wouldn't think it's a controversial concept, but we are where we are. Mini Rahman is a self-described writer, speaker and muesli eater, although only one of those will be tested today, and she's the JCWI's Public Affairs Manager. I am delighted to welcome her. Hello, Mini. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Um, where have you been isolating and how have you found it? So I've actually been in Birmingham with my mum for quite a while, but I've just made it back to London Um, yeah, it's not too bad, actually. Uh, it's, it's fairly hot at the moment, which is making working from home <laughs> difficult. But other than that, I uh, can't really complain. Has the, has the change of environment been weird? Oh, definitely, especially going from my mum's house in Birmingham with a garden to a London flat, which is just quite difficult, actually. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, being trapped in London flat. But, I mean, Greece must be nice. Greece is lovely, but I am similarly trapped with my mother, who is in the final stages of Alzheimer's. So I've been her primary uh, carer for the last six months, a much, a much longer shift than I had arranged with my sisters, because I can't get off the island and they can't get back. Um, so uh, it's, been, it's been absolutely lovely, actually, spending this time with mum. But I also have a very unhappy partner back in London that is demanding I come back and soon. Um, are you looking forward to all this freedom coming our way on the 4th or are you going to be one of those unpatriotic mask wearers? Uh, I think I'll be an unpatriotic mask wearer. Uh, Hurrah! It will be quite nice uh, to have the idea in my mind that I can go out so <laughs> looking forward to that a bit but definitely on the cautious side. Minnie, tell me from a from a, a migration policy point of view, how has this necessary culture of isolating affected the way people think of other, of outsiders? So I think it's actually been really interesting. I think we've seen quite a fundamental shift in the way that the public perceives migrants, especially because so many migrants have been key workers or essential workers during this time. And I think that the public has a, a new sort of consciousness about what work looks like and who those people are providing that work. Um, so I think there's been a sort of increase in people's knowledge and an understanding that we're all in this together and that the people who are providing the services, keeping the country going are often uh, from migrant communities and backgrounds and that they should be valued appropriately and that work should be considered differently. And I think we've also seen a, a slight shift in that recognition from the government as well. You know, we've seen them having to do a few things for migrants, change a few of their policies, such as 
the bereaved families policy, um, also the NHS surcharge, which is a, a visa fee that migrants have to pay on top of their usual fees just yeah, yeah. in order to access the NHS. Um, so, you know, we've seen some recognition that these people need more rights. Um, and I think the public is, is quite on board with that. You see, I, I was observing the same shift with interest. And then the Black Lives Matter um, protests started and the reaction to that has knocked me back that actually we're not further forward, but we're possibly even further back from where we were. What, what's your impression? So I think, I, I mean, I feel the same way, you know, it's easy to say, oh, we've we've had a bit of progress just because any progress looks like progress. And then when a big event like the Black Lives Matter movement happens, it, it can sort of trigger us to going back to, well, nothing's changed. But what I think the disconnect is about is that I think we often don't connect our migration history with our colonial history. And there is no cultural understanding. We don't have an educational understanding of of colonialism and what that looks like and the impact on communities of colour that has extended um, throughout this century. So, mm. I, I mean, I think it shows and proves to me that what we need in this country is, is a lot more education about our history and that that would affect our understanding of migration patterns and our understanding of the impact on black communities and other communities of colour. As a foreigner in the UK, and I've been in the UK for about 30 years, I always um, think there is a, a sort of, a, let's say a gap, let's not define the size of it, um, between the way British people perceive Britain and people outside Britain perceive it. Has the fact that the UK is seen objectively to have done worse than most countries during the coronavirus, how does that interact with the myth that everyone wants to swarm over here and and sort of take over the land? Well, I mean, I think the thing about that myth is, is that it is a myth. I mean, there is simply no evidence that people just want to come here, um, that we're, you know, that we're a point at which everyone is trying to get to. I mean, the reality about the way people move to the UK is that they often have some kind of reasoning for wanting to do that in the sense that they have family here or they have friends here or they have a job here or they're, they're trying to, to work um, or study or they are a refugee or an asylum seeker. So, and I always think about this that it, it's so difficult to explain to people <laughs> that there is a rationale behind why people want to move and also people should be allowed to move to wherever they they want and when people hear that that you know they everyone just wants to come here to take to take benefits or, or whatever myth it is that they think I always want to sort of scream at them and say well you know we have some of the most horrendous draconian immigration rules particularly in the form of the hostile environment which specifically bars migrants from accessing vital services like healthcare or housing or welfare even bank accounts and at some points driving licenses too and mm. and that is a system that is very well known we are well known across the world for having a hard border regime you know, I think that doesn't really add to the 
to the conversation about, uh, you know, what the death toll in the UK has been and, you know, people will still want to come here if they've got a rationale to do so and or if they're an asylum seeker or a refugee. So I, I don't yeah. really know how the two interact with each other. But I think the UK is being perceived right now as a quite a, a, a scary place when I speak to people who are outside of the UK. You know, the rest of the world is viewing our death toll quite negatively and there is an understanding that that potentially we haven't protected the public as well as we could have. And there yeah. is also an understanding that, that migrant populations are treated quite badly here and have been on the receiving end of um, coronavirus, particularly with the high death toll on BME communities too. So I think we're being perceived quite negatively. How that will interact with migration patterns is, is unclear yet. Well, of course, someone on the other side of the debate might say, well, that's job done then, because the the reason they're pushing for these sort of policies are to discourage migration. And so they would presumably welcome the fact that, you know, British reputation abroad is one of uh, a, a country that is difficult to get into. What, what's, what's your reaction to that? So I think the honest reaction to that is there is just no evidence that our hostile environment policies and the way we treat migrants stops people from moving here. Like, m- People move here. People have always moved. Movement is a reality of human life. Um, And when you look at what the hostile environment actually does in practice is what it does is crack down on people who need desperately need access to services. It also causes directly racial discrimination for British communities and for migrants themselves. And we also know that those were the same policies that trapped the Windrush generation. Mm, So people mm. who'd been here since the 70s and have grown up in the UK and they were denied vital access to services and healthcare. And I think when you look at the evidence of what the hostile environment does, there is simply no evidence that it discourages people from moving here. It just treats them awfully once they are here. And in fact, very recently, there was um, a report from the government in which they said themselves that they had no evidence about whether or not the hostile environment was working and that they'd made no attempts to evaluate it. So it is simply (laughs) political positioning. And actually, when you have a system in place which treats us all awfully, because let's face it, we're all one lost document away from being trapped in the hostile environment, you're causing chaos for lots of people, which has been particularly poignant during a pandemic when you've got huge groups of people who are suddenly out of work or need access to services and need access to healthcare and are being barred from doing so you know our society is is only as protected as the least protected communities amongst us and we've got a system which creates very vulnerable groups of people where they might not be so vulnerable had they been able to engage in community in in a normal and healthy way the point I always make a sort of, uh, you know, little analogy, little summary of that is that if you start issuing nurses with card readers, they're not just going to use them for me because I'm a foreigner. Eventually, the time will come if you if you basically put the infrastructure in place that that values human beings differently. Um, it's there for everyone. 
And I think that is what the evidence actually shows. You know, we've taken the government to court over the right to rent policy, which is the one that asks landlords to check the um, yeah, yeah. to check the immigration status of tenants. And what we found in our research and when we went to court and the court actually agreed with this is that what it does is cause, cause landlords to racially discriminate because they're fined if they rent a house to someone who doesn't have the right status, which is incredibly hard to check anyway. So what a landlord does is, is look at a list of names and say, oh, well, that person sounds like they might be foreign, therefore I'm not going to rent to them. And obviously, if you've got a foreign sounding name, but you are British, that traps you in a system and makes you less able to access safe housing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the whole system directly impacts all of us. It's a hard question, but do you think a second-generation BAME migrant like Patel um, has in some ways license to do and say things that a white Secretary of State would never get away with? I think it's an interesting question. I mean, at the end of the day, I would say that the system that Priti Patel is now heading was implemented by a white Home Secretary, was implemented by Theresa May, and actually yeah, some yeah. of our draconian immigration policy was set in place well before that as well. The groundwork was laid before that. But what I think second-generation migrants have done in this cabinet is is sort of use the diversity angle to give them... Uh, license in a way to to say that they have uh, uh, in in some way consulted with those communities and therefore those communities are on board with the with the policies that they're putting in place. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, they are conservative politicians, and those are conservative policies. So I'm not necessarily sure how much race plays into that. Once you are a conservative politician who agrees with those policies. I've read a couple of um, interesting blogs from uh, one from a human rights lawyer and one from an immigration specialist, which flag up the possibility that the emergency powers the government has taken for itself may act as a sort of legal Trojan horse for draconian border exclusions and uh, uh, immigration policies, asylum seeker policies and, and things like that. Is that something that uh, that you at the Institute are looking at very closely? That's definitely something we are extremely concerned about. And we were concerned when the emergency legislation was passing through government, particularly because the emergency legislation gives new policing powers to, to immigration officers. And there are there are several concerns that those powers last for two years. And how will they be used once the pandemic has sort of subsided or, or is at a level of control. And I think we have already seen some indication from the government that they will conflate this idea of border control with travel visas and and quarantine should be used to control the borders when actually it should be used to control how people are transmitting the virus. Mm. And there's definitely been a means to sort of conflate the two issues. And, and actually, they have indicated that they will go against World Health Organization guidance, which currently says that 
if you, for example, are an asylum seeker or someone who has entered the UK in a so-called clandestine way, you should still be given access to healthcare. You should be given a safe place to quarantine um, and that actually those measures should be outside of your usual um, quarantining policies or or whatever you have in place to control the virus. What we are largely concerned about is that they will interpret that as a means to introduce more detention powers as a way to detain people for longer or under more harsher rules. And they will use it as a means to say that actually we need a, a harder border, which from my personal point of view I can't possibly see how our borders could get any harder we have an extremely hard border regime which leads to many people losing their lives as they try to enter the UK there are simply no ways to enter the UK legally unless you are already on British soil um, Mm. which makes you know the system is is completely counterproductive and if the government does intend to use the emergency legislation to implement a more restrictive regime, then we're definitely going to have, see a huge impact on um, vulnerable, vulnerable groups and, and asylum seekers trying to enter the UK. On on the issue of uh, clandestine, um, to use the term, uh, entry, is there the invasion happening that is being presented by people like Nigel Farage at the moment? Uh, what are the facts? I, I read that numbers are slightly up from last year, but that that is largely a reflection of much less uh, shipping lane traffic on the English Channel because of coronavirus, and that most people expect the numbers to even out to broadly the same levels as last year. Um, what, what's your take? I, I would also expect the same and, and we also have to take into account how weather affects travel so when there is good weather you see a slight peak in travel um, you also see a slight peak when weather is extremely bad because people become desperate um, you know they're essentially homeless living on the other side of the channel and what I would say about clandestine entries is that the public doesn't really understand this. And you have have people like Nigel Farage really going for it, saying that these are huge numbers of people trying to gain entry into the UK and, and that it's awful. And I do understand um, how the public might feel in Kent. You know, it's it's not very nice to see people crossing the channel or, or risking their lives and, and ending up on a shore when they could have had a safe way to enter the UK. Uh, but the reality of um, the undocumented populations, so that's people who are in the UK without documents who are considered illegal, is that the majority of them have not entered the UK via that route. What they have done is enter the UK on a on a visa and because the system is so complicated, have fallen out of status or lost their status. There are a significant number of people who are failed asylum seekers who have nowhere to go, but the government has denied them them refugee status. There are people who, for example, may have been on a spouse visa, been subject to domestic violence, have left their partner and are Mm. therefore no longer able to stay in the UK legally. Uh, there are victims of trafficking who fall into that. There are people who have had difficulty switching from a student visa to a work visa. Yeah, there are yeah. people who have 
worked and lost their jobs, which I imagine the pandemic may have a huge impact on those groups of people. So the majority of people without documents in the UK have not entered via that route. The people who have entered via that route are often very, very vulnerable and very scared, very isolated. The high majority of asylum seekers and refugees who've been trapped in Europe, trying to reach their family, trying to reach their friends, speak English, have a good claim to being in the UK. But because they aren't on British soil, they can't claim asylum, which means that they have to make those dangerous journeys. And so what the government really should be doing to change that system, because I think actually all of us from the right and the left would agree that the that system doesn't work because people have to cross the channel in a dangerous way. The system doesn't work and what the government should be doing is providing people with safe and legal routes to enter the UK, potentially on French soil too. You can't complain effectively that people are entering via clandestine routes when those are the only routes you have left open to them for them to enter. And those are also the the routes that empower traffickers and people who want to exploit those people you know you have the government complaining that there's lots of trafficking into the UK well if you don't provide people with a way to get here safely then those are the people who are going to be empowered and who will take advantage of very vulnerable people. I sometimes try to imagine what it must feel like um, fleeing let's say the conflict in Syria um, walking across an entire continent on foot only to be confronted at the last hurdle by Nigel Farage shouting at you from a dinghy. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. And whether, whether that might make me actually fucking think about turning back. <laughs> uh, um, what, about, what about a subject close to my heart, obviously, EU27 migrants? Uh, now, you know, people do tend to think of us as largely sorted. And obviously, I accept that we are in a hugely privileged position when compared to, say, a refugee fleeing a conflict. But I recently discovered, by being stuck here, that there were, for instance, no repatriation flights for, you know, people with uh, uh, permanent settled status, but not a UK passport. So. We are in this weird, semi-stateless, grey area at the moment. Is the is the council um, also thinking about that, or are we outside your purview? I think that we would be thinking about those people, um, like yourself, who are in the EU. I mean, what what I think this is more emblematic of is the way that the government considers migrant populations and migrant communities. You know, this is the system, this kind of policy is a thing that pushes the us versus them, the insider and the outsider, the the group of other. And what it is essentially saying is that you may have created your life in the UK, you may be legally resident, but you will never be part of British society unless you have a British passport. And that is fundamentally how the Home Office runs its policies. You could have lived in the UK for the majority of your life since you were a child. You may even have been born in the UK and you're not necessarily considered a citizen until you've passed or jumped a whole load of hurdles to get the right documentation. The whole system is 
if it's founded on that, that's the thing that really needs to change. And that's the thing that we would be working on is, is fundamental reform about how people are viewed as being part of our communities. Mm. Do you think do you think changing the voting system so that people are allowed to vote on the basis of residency rather than citizenship, which we do, for instance, for uh, local elections, we used to for European elections, but not for general elections. Do you think that would be the sort of grand policy move that might begin to change things, you know, change things at the overarching level? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 100% a policy that I would support. You know, I think that you should be able to vote based on where you live and where you've created your life rather than uh, necessarily having the right passport. And I know that that's something that um, EU campaigners have been calling for uh, and also some British citizens abroad too. Um, So that's definitely the kind of policy that we'd like to see. I think as a first step, one of the things that we have to think about, particularly for EU migrants, is is how they're going to be treated after Brexit and what that looks like in the foreseeable future. You know, the government's got this uh, settled status policy in place at the moment, which means EU nationals who've resided in the UK for many years are now having to apply for their right to stay in the UK, despite Mm. being promised that they would be able to before Brexit. Um, And I think that that kind of system is very problematic, will leave out large groups of people who aren't able to apply or just don't know that they can apply and they will fall out of status. And we're not being provided with any kind of documentary evidence, which is, you know, which is a very big thing because as I've, like I was saying, as I've discovered in times of crisis, in times of stress, um, states tend to revert a little bit to show me your papers um, are there also opportunities for, uh, uh, you know, immigration advocate organizations? Um, we, we talked about how people's perception of who is an essential worker and what that person looks like has begun to change. Um, in Greece, for instance, we have seen that actually, uh, you know, the, the policy around um, refugee camps, just by virtue of having the political focus off it, has been able to develop a, a, a little bit more in a more rational way um, because everyone's focus has been on coronavirus. Um, and, and there's also, in a weird way, this pandemic has has been proof positive of our interconnectedness so the, there may be an opportunity to say, unless you think you can isolate yourself from the world completely, then the only remaining option is to begin to think of us as one species and uh, to begin to think that we have to cooperate as countries. Um, what what do you think at the council? What other you know, what are the hot issues that you'll be actively pushing in the next few months? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist, so I I absolutely think that there's always opportunity to push for change. And I think you're right about us viewing society differently and what that means for migrant communities. I think the work that we'll be doing and the work we'll be looking at is, is we'll be looking forward to sort of a post 
economic recovery out of coronavirus and what that looks like for migrant communities and how you ensure that migrant work is valued in the way that it should be. And I think for us, that that seems like one of the biggest opportunities because you not only have this dichotomy between um, key workers and and everyone else uh, and also the way that the government is going to treat people in the future points-based system which is that you know work is valued on skill level rather than the actual work that you are doing so there's a couple Mm. of conversations there and more fundamentally for us we are thinking about undocumented work and the work um, of undocumented migrants particularly because people they haven't been part of the conversation and people are failing to recognise that many undocumented people are working in key worker roles. So they will be carers, they will be cleaners, they will be working in shops, they will be in some cases security guards, you know, in, in, in every in construction, in every sort of major key work industry, you will find undocumented workers. So what we will be trying to do is to ensure that those people have the right to work and that their right to work is leveled up to the rights of all other workers and that other workers have their rights leveled up too. Um, and then fundamentally, our priority is always and will always be uh, scrapping the hostile environment just because I think this pandemic has really, really shown us that you cannot have a two-tier system mm. where some people have access to vital services and others cannot access the things that they need to be safe and healthy. And I think, you know, we all have recognised during this pandemic that we're only as healthy as our neighbours. Um, if our neighbour can't access healthcare or can't work or is, is unsupported, doesn't has lost their job and therefore can't get benefits, you know, our communities are weaker. And so I think the major opportunity here is to ensure that the hostile environment is removed and that, and that people can access the things they need to survive. Yes, it's a sort of, it's a sort of, low-level ugliness that underlies everything um, in in this area. Um, Finally, Minnie, tell me, how can people support your organisation? What what can we do to help? Absolutely. So you're able to become a member if you go to JCWI's website. Um, Do follow us on Twitter, join in with our campaigns and our petitions, and just get involved in in any way you can, really. Um, I always like to say, uh, so it's www.jcwi.org.uk Very good. And um, do you also accept uh, uh, people who can volunteer their time or a relevant skill or, you know, who may not be able to afford to contribute money? Uh, We don't at this current time, just because Mm. we're all working from home and all over the place. But uh, there are many ways to get involved uh, without donating and you can... uh, join in any of our campaigns if you just visit the website or follow us on Twitter at jcwi underscore UK. Brilliant. Minnie, it is a huge subject and we skated through some basics. I I consider this a a prologue, a a promise of a much longer conversation with you in the future. Thank you on behalf of our listeners for joining me today. Um, And listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to support us, search Patreon The Bunker Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. And remember, stay alert, especially to bullshit. 
This is Alexandre from The Bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.